everybody. I am Pastor Victoria Larson. I'm Samantha Menapace, the Christian Education Director at Good Shepherd. And we are doing the Women of Advent podcast together. This is very exciting. It's our first podcast. Yeah. Woohoo. So for the Women of Advent, we are talking specifically about four women who appear in Jesus' genealogy as it's recorded in chapter one of the gospel according to Matthew. And we're going in chronological order, uh, right, as the genealogy lists them. And so the very first woman that we are talking about is Tamar, who comes from Genesis chapter 38. And uh, we have, I have so I call like a content warning. <laughs> Uh, so a little bit about Tamar, um, Sarah Bessie, who wrote a book called Jesus Feminist describes Tamar as a woman who outsmarted dishonorable men to defend herself. And it is a story that features sex and incest and betrayal and really messed up family systems and also has the appearance of prostitution. So if you are listening in the company of small children, take that into account. Um, and also just to give you a heads up, if you're a little bit feminist, like some of us are, this story is also really driven forward by the patriarchal tenet that women's primary value comes from their ability to bear children. Sorry about that. So we're going to start off by telling the story, and then we're going to um, offer a little bit of insight into the text itself and the context it comes from in the Bible. We're going to talk a little bit about how this story has been interpreted over the years and especially in recent years. And uh, we're going to touch on where it's cropped up in pop culture. And that's going to be our podcast today. Are we ready to dive in? Let's do it. We're ready. Okay, so uh, telling the story. Um, so let's just locate ourselves in the biblical landscape. Uh, flashback to your Andrew Lloyd Webber repertory and think of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. We're actually like right in the middle of the timeline of that story. Joseph is in slavery in Egypt. And while he's over there, those 12 brothers that conspired to sell him into slavery, they are growing up and having families of their own. And one of those brothers is Judah. Judah is uh, the fourth oldest brother of Jacob and Leah, who uh, so like half brother to Joseph. Um, and he's grown up and he has three sons of his own. He has Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And the oldest one, whose name is Ur, marries Tamar, who is a Canaanite, so she's a foreigner. And she doesn't come with the backstory. She just sort of appears in the narrative. Um, the Bible tells us that Ur is a wicked man, so God kills him. Great. Uh, he dies childless, which kicks into gear this Israelite tradition called Leverite marriage. And we have to understand what Leverite marriage is in order for the rest of the story to make sense. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. Leverite marriage. If a man dies childless in the Israelite culture, it was like he never existed. Uh, in the Bible, it, it's like his name is blotted out. And also, uh, this is kind of just incidentally true. It's not really the focus of the law that springs up around this circumstance. The widow of that man who died is really up the creek because she's no longer a virgin. 
and she doesn't have any children who can support her. So the Israelite culture comes up with this law, this law that comes from God, that dictates that the next oldest son in the birth order has to marry the eldest brother's widow and give her children. And those children would then be raised as though they were really the children of the firstborn son. So Onan, second in the birth order, comes up and Judah says to him, all right, you've got to marry the widow, Tamar. So Onan and Tamar get married. But Onan, for whatever reason, doesn't want to give Tamar children. And part of his motivation might be because of the inheritance laws and the way that they worked. He might have been hoping that if he could withhold children from her, he would inherit a larger share. In any case, he practices this sort of form of birth control. Uh, he spills his seed on the ground, according to the Bible, uh, in order to keep Tamar from getting pregnant. God is not terribly happy about this, so Onan dies. And at this point, Judah, Tamar's father-in-law, is looking at her a little bit of scamps. Like, I actually was thinking about the cat Oscar in Rhode Island at that uh, nursing home uh, who would, got this reputation as the angel of death cat because he would go and nap beside people who were about to die. That's the kind of reputation that Tamar is getting. It's this sort of like lethal woman, angel of death vibe she's got going on. So uh, Judah, father-in-law, tells her, okay, I've got the third son, Shelah, but he's a little young for you right now. So just hold on. I'll marry you off to him when he's older. And in the meantime, why don't you just go back to your father's house? And we need to understand, just pausing here, that this is a really unfair and even cruel thing to do to Tamar. Because first of all, she's not responsible for anyone's death. It doesn't seem to occur to Judah that maybe his sons died because they weren't very nice people. Has to be because of the lady. Um, second, Tamar has no financial security in this circumstance. So she's cut off from Judah's house, her husband's house. She has no children that might receive an inheritance from him. And because Judah has betrothed her to his third son, she cannot legally remarry. And she doesn't have any choice. She has to wait for Judah to live up to his promises. And it transpires that he has no interest in doing that. Can I add one um, yeah, quick absolutely. comment. Mm -hmm. So I found um, a really an interesting article by Susan Nidich. She contextualizes um, Judah's actions in a way oh, where, yeah, so she writes how there's um, two in this, the time that we're talking about, there were two um, like proper roles for women, which was being an unmarried virgin in their dad's house or being a childbearing wife. And so by sending Tamar back to her dad's house as not an unmarried virgin, since she had technically been married twice and was not a virgin, but also didn't have children, as you were saying. Um, she, Judah's actions are breaking a social construct that had held the community together. So it's not just that Tamar was being, um, I guess, betrayed by Judah. It was that by sending Tamar out in a way that was not the agreed upon um, I guess, way to treat women like Tamar, that action broke um, like the social expectation for women. Um, it's, it's not just a, an individual action, it's 
um, has like social ramifications for the entire community. Oh, that's intense. Yeah, I, that's I think a piece of especially the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that I think often escapes us is how important the well-being of the entire community was mm -hmm. and how a lot of these laws were meant to support the structure of the community. So thank you for that insight. That's so helpful. Yeah, and then actually it comes back. Um, so when we find out what Tamar does to right her wrong, the fact that the when, when she will write it, it helps, quote, repair the social fabric. Um, that is why that contributes to why she is such an honored person to be included in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. That um, throws me into this uh, name that we get from, I think it's Isaiah for the Messiah, the restorer of the breach. Ooh. Tamar is totally living into this restorer of the breach. Yeah. Reputation. That's really cool. Oh, and I, I just want to mention too, I found at least one source that mentioned that Judah technically could have performed the Leverite obligation himself. Ooh. So he is also like not willing to put his own self on the line to make sure that this law is fulfilled. Wow. Uh, and he's not willing to set Tamar free to remarry, which was technically another mm -hmm. option that he had. So uh, this waiting game that he makes her play is mm -hmm. like the worst of all possible options available to him. Yeah. Oh, and also during this time, Judah himself is widowed. And he decides to live the good bachelor life and go up to a sheep shearing festival. <laughs> so this is when Tamar decides to make her move. Um, Judah's wife has just died. Judah is going up to visit the sheep shears in their festival. And I have to, I'm reading into this, but I have to say that like going to a sheep shearing festival seems like maybe it's a little bit of a metaphor for some other kind of party that they're having. And also that's exactly what Judah did when he got up there. Mm -hmm. Tamar knows his destination and she might even kind of be familiar with his intent. And she also knows that the third son, Shelah, is of marriageable age and she hasn't been married to him yet. So she's like, this is the time for action. I'm going for it. So she goes up ahead of Judah to the location where the sheep shearing is happening. She takes off her widow's mourning garb, which apparently she's been wearing all these years. Uh, and she puts on a veil, which somehow seems to be part of the costume of the temple prostitute. What's a temple prostitute, you ask? <laughs> uh, so this is an interesting question. Uh, they're referenced a couple of times throughout the Hebrew scriptures as a part of the Canaanite, not Israelite, temple ritual system. Um, these would be women who participated in sex as part of the fertility rites of the Canaanite religion. But there's no like hard evidence that these women ever actually existed, but they are referenced throughout the Hebrew scriptures, kind of as reference to the, how the Canaanites religious system is totally inferior to the Israelite religious system. Uh, so anyway, Tamar goes up, she puts herself in Judah's path. And lo and behold, I guess she really knows her father-in-law because as he's passing by, he sees her, he approaches her, and he solicits her for sex. And that, all of that is like on Judah, that like all she did was show up in the right place at the right time. Judah did everything else on his own. So they negotiate what the price is going to be for Tamar and they agree on the going rate of one baby goat for a sex act. Uh, and then Judah like pats his pockets and says, you know, I don't have any goats on me at the moment. So Tamar asks for security and Judah's fine. Like, sure, what do you want? And Tamar says, okay, I will take your signet, your cord and your staff, all of which are symbols of Judah's identity and authority. 
seems like kind of a high price, but Judah is like, sure. Um, so Judah and Tamar have sex. And let's just take a moment here to recognize that even in the act of having sex with her, Judah doesn't recognize his daughter-in-law, the woman who's been married to two of his three sons. <sighs> Gosh, Judah, it's not an easy man to like. Uh, he goes on his way, satisfied. Tamar promptly disappears with all his stuff. Uh, and also in a miracle of fertility timing in this one sex act, she gets pregnant. So Judah is, ch does try to pay her with the baby goat later, but his friend cannot find her again. No one can do anything about it. So everyone goes home and pretty much forgets what's happened until three months later when Tamar turns up pregnant. Uh, and this is on first blush, a death sentence for Tamar because she's technically still betrothed to Shelah. And so it's Judah's job as like defender of his eldest son's and youngest son's honor to call the law down on her head. And he does that and he does it really viciously. Uh, he tells the authorities not only to stone her, which is what the law called for, but to burn her. He doesn't just wanna kill her, he wants to destroy her body. And can we just take a quick moment to pause and recognize the hypocrisy of that because Judah has just come back from sheep shearing right after his own wife has died and his many years widowed daughter-in-law who he failed to provide for has gotten pregnant and his first reaction is the law. I want all of the law for her, all on her. Uh, but Tamar has her trump card all lined up. So she opens the door to the guys who are coming to drag her out and throw her on the fire. And she's like, great, hold on. Would you just wait there? Would you just mind running this staff and signet and cord to Judah and just let him know that it was the owner of these things who's the father of my child. Also worth noting at this point that it was illegal in Israelite law for a father-in-law to sleep with his daughter-in-law and the penalty for doing so was death. So in this move, Tamar very neatly turns the tables on her father-in-law. He had the law on his side. He was convinced that he was in the right. And she just like ever so elegantly totally turns the tables on him and ends up holding all of the power in the situation in her own hands. Well, funnily enough, Judah immediately relents. Tamar goes on to have twins uh, and Perez, one of those twins, becomes the many times great grandfather of Jesus. Which means that the very first woman in Jesus' genealogy is first of all, a foreigner. And second of all, a woman who got pregnant under less than honorable conditions, kind of like Mary herself was about to do. Uh, so that is Tamar's story. And Sam, I'm gonna kick it over to you to tell us a little bit more about just the details of this story and the language in it. Yeah, so when you look at the story just by reading Genesis 38, it seems like it's a really um, just like condensed and detailed and focused story about Judah and Tamar. But if you zoom out a little bit, it takes place in, um, as you were saying earlier, and within the Joseph narrative between Genesis 37 and Genesis 50, it's the only chapter in there that doesn't focus on Joseph. Uh, oh. it's, yeah, it seems like very much out of place. And it's so, like a meanwhile back at the ranch. Yeah, yeah, it's like very, it, uh, again, at first glance, it appears very random and it's very questionable why 
you know, the author or compiler of Genesis or the Genesis we have now would have went from Joseph to Judah and Tamar back to Joseph. However, if you look a little closer, there are a lot of themes or the story of Tamar and Judah have in common with the story of Joseph. And some of those themes are um, garments. And yes, which is interesting. And kind I'm so of here for this. Yes. So garments and um, justice mm. are the two big ones. And then also goats, <laughs> which are a little <laughs> less, <laughs> less, um, I don't know. Well, maybe we can find something within the theme of goats, but I was going to focus. That took on... an unexpected turn. I was not yeah. expecting goats to be a theme and I'm delighted that they've made an appearance. So I guess we can start with the garments theme. So when you think of Joseph, what's one of the first things that comes into your head? Amazing Technicolor dream coat. Exactly. So that, oh, yeah. and that same with me. I mean, we all think of Joseph and his amazing, beautiful coat. Um, and so we think back to the Joseph story when he, his brothers take the coat from him and throw him in a pit and then sell him into slavery, <laughs> which is really mean and um, very problematic. But the action of Joseph losing his coat kind of symbolizes his transition from a beloved son into um, an enslaved person. Ooh, yeah. And so the taking off of that garment is a symbol yeah. of that. And so if we go to Judah and Tamar, Tamar takes off her widow's garments in verse 14 and then puts on a veil. And that symbolizes her transition into a prostitute and her action of um, righting her wrong. And then mm -hmm. at the after she meets with, with Judah, she then um, takes off her veil and puts back on her garments. And so that transitions into a new life for her. I love that. I, I, yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the veil later, okay. but I just I'm also excited. kind of talk into the conversation here that yeah. um, because of something Paul wrote in one of his letters, I think it's one of the Timothy letters, mm -hmm. um, and this understanding that women were supposed to cover their head when they pray. For the last 2000 years of our history, women wearing veils have been seen as like observing a sort of righteousness, like being really modest. So it's really interesting that in this story that veil meaning gets turned around a little bit and it's like she puts on the veil and then she goes out and prostitutes herself. Yeah. And that's yeah. actually, that's really also interesting in what, um, Another theme of deception is that the veil was used to specifically to deceive Judah. Yeah. Which is, is really, I would love to come back to that when we talk about veils, because that seems to be very, I guess, inimical to what veils were traditionally considered. Absolutely. Um, so if we now turn to chapter 39, which goes back to Joseph, there's another garment incident where Joseph um, he's living in the house of a, an officer of Pharaoh. The officer's wife tries to solicit Joseph for sex and Joseph says no. And he says, that's like not the right thing to do. Like I'm an honorable person, but the wife like will not stop trying mm -hmm. to get him as we know. And then, um, at one day as she's trying to get him to have sex with her, he caught, catches hold of his garment and the garment rips. Oh, yes. yes. I forgot this part yeah. of the story. So it's another garment incident. And 
So this garment um, becomes the evidence by which the officer condemns Joseph. Yes. However, the important thing is this evidence is wrong. So Joseph is wrongly accused of the crime, which he clearly did not commit, which this entire basically chapter of 39 is emphasizing Joseph did not do this. But there is evidence in the form of a garment that ends up sending Joseph to jail. So interestingly, going back to Judah and Tamar, there is also evidence that Tamar uses to um, prove herself innocent yeah. of her crime. However, what I, I would argue that Tamar actually does commit her crime. She does prostitute herself. Like, yep. that is true. And technically, according to the law, she broke the law and prostituted herself. But the evidence that she presents, which basically proves her crime ends up um like exonerating exonerating her exactly yeah so it's a really interesting like play on justice and evidence and deception um and all of these things you're making me think about like how subversive her actions are because yeah Mm -hmm. she like nowhere in the bible is tamar's like choice to prostitute herself lifted up as an honorable thing absolutely Mm -hmm. not but in choosing that and kind of being forced into that mm-hmm. as her only recourse, she's really, and choosing it for herself and becoming mm-hmm. a very active player in her own fate, she really exposes the brokenness of mm-hmm. the systems that are meant to like help her and, and the ways in yeah. which they fall short in this just like incredibly subversive and elegant way. Absolutely, yes. And I think that one of the questions that this brings up for me is, you know, as like a white privileged woman in society, I'm often given what is considered owed to me. Mm -hmm. And I rarely am, you know, betrayed by the people around me or by more importantly, by the structures of society in general. Mm -hmm. But for someone like Tamar, who had only been betrayed first by, I guess, by Judah, and then by the rest of the community, because she was just sitting in her home and had no choice. And couldn't save herself or it seemed like she couldn't save herself then she goes out and does this and breaks the law but gets what she's owed and so it makes me think reflectively like how do I judge people who get what they deserve in ways that I consider unjust but I only consider them unjust because the system works for me and not for other people and so I think yeah yeah she's she helps us really reflect on both how we unfairly judge people and the ways that our society, as you were saying, are very broken and how a lot of times people are not given what they deserve or what they're promised. Yeah, there's definitely a strong theme in this story of just highlighting the ways in which justice falls short and the law can fall short of what's right. Yeah, I think it also makes me question like the end versus the means. Because both mm-hmm. in, in Joseph and in Tamar, you know, Joseph's brother <laughs> tried to kill him and sold him into slavery. But then yep. that action allowed Joseph to, you know, become a leader and save his entire family and save the lineage that will eventually lead to Jesus. And it says at the end of Genesis 50, um, Joseph says, even though you intended to harm me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing today. And similarly, Tamar's actions, even though she was betrayed by Judah and had to act um, with her own agency, she and doing, you know, an action that a lot of people would consider not noble or not good, but good, um, she ended up becoming 
an important part of the lineage again that led to Jesus. Yeah. So like she could have lifted those words right out of Joseph's mouth. Exactly. And so it does make me, you know, it makes us all question like, what is God's justice? Like what is God's justice compared to our human conception of justice? Where does God exist within the ends and the means of the, you know, our story of humanity? Oh, I like it. I think just, I would like one more, I found like a really interesting article that kind of talks about where God exists in Ooh, this story yeah. where so interestingly the only but, in the, yeah, yeah yeah like pa- like just pausing there for a quick minute yeah. to note that like mm-hmm. in some stories in genesis god's presence is really explicit and it's not in the story god is really not an active player in the sense of being explicitly recognized yeah. as a presence so yeah so, where where well, i was it? gonna say so can you so where is god explicitly mentioned okay where is god's uh, presence other places in genesis explicitly um, oh. i think about jacob at the jabbok and the wrestling with the God, with the angel until morning. I think about earlier in Genesis, like God is literally walking in the garden of Eden. Um, I think of Abraham and God talking face to face. These are all stories from Genesis, earlier in Genesis. Yeah, so I, I totally, yes, those are great examples. And God is almost always present during procreation. So, yes, so, and a majority, um, I have here Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah as well. Um, God exists within um, the process of these four women becoming pregnant. Mm-hmm. And three of them, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, are all very specifically called barren. And Leah is not technically called barren, but it says, the Bible says, she has her womb opened by God. So God is extremely present in all of these acts. So if we turn back to 38, chapter 38, God is present by um, putting Er, Er, Er. Er, er, I don't know how to say his name. It is spelled, for those of you listening, E-R. Yeah. That's his name. So we're just going to (laughs) guess. So by putting Er and Onan to death, which Mm -hmm. is basically the opposite of procreation because that was the means by which Tamar could have had children. And instead of opening her womb, God kills her partners. (laughs) And an article by Jonathan Krushwitz argues that Tamar is portrayed as basically the opposite of every other matriarch in Genesis. And the oppositeness of Tamar actually makes her a matriarch because it makes us think about matriarchs in a really inverted way. And so it's really cool. And so Jonathan Krushwitz, he begins by explaining that specifically, as we were talking about the act of procreation, the way that Judah and Tamar meet and procreate is seeping with Tamar's agency in a way that is not ever present in the Bible, like except in this story. (laughs) And so in in normal instances of procreation, it's the man, the man who sees and then takes, goes into and conceives. Mm -hmm. But if we look at Tamar and Judah, Tamar specifically sees Judah. And while Judah also sees her back, the text says she saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given him in marriage. And so her seeing the situation led her to allow herself to be seen by Judah. And then next, she takes Judah's signet and cord and staff. And that happened prior to him going into her, which that's still, the text still says that. But then super interestingly, 
it's after she takes his stuff and he goes into her the text says she conceived by him and that's really important um, because it implies grammatically it's actually really ambiguous if it's for Judah or by Judah. Oh. And so the author of this article argues that the ambiguity implies that it's not just for Judah and it's he's also a means by which she conceives and that just like once again underscores that she went and got what she needed. And so the man in this was almost a passive player and she employed her agency to make this happen for her yeah she did yeah and it's yeah, just, I, yeah I read a similar article that pointed out if you look specifically at the verbs that pertain to Tamar in this story in like the first half of the story they are all passive and then as soon as she sees it's the seeing that is the turning point she all of her verbs are active all of a sudden that's so cool isn't that cool yeah thinking where is God in this especially since as you were just saying the only mention of God is when Tamar is being described as passive and as soon as she takes an active role God no longer exists in the text in the story right and so this author argues that the godlessness that is present in Tamar and in this text actually allows Tamar to exist with God in a more intimate and he argues more um, accurate way because God, the God of the Bible, as Bonhoeffer says, is a God of powerlessness. Mm. And so because Tamar was also in a very powerless situation, she experienced God with her. And that experience of God allowed her to respond in an active way to the situation and actually enact God's larger plan. Which is really fascinating, and I also think for us as Lutherans, <laughs> brings up kind of an issue with the um, tension between grace and works, because this story yeah. is all about works, and all yes, about her taking responsibility, and her work, like the lineage of Jesus was like hinged upon her actions, which is kind of antithetical to our Lutheran understanding of works and grace. So I'd love... Yeah. And I know Bonhoeffer was Lutheran, so I think there is obviously a way to Lutheranize this reading, <laughs> but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. That's such a good observation. Well, um, my immediate thought was like, for me, Tamar's story of initiative is like what makes this story incredible. But what makes it miraculous is that she actually conceives mm-hmm. during sex with Judah. Yeah. Like that, feels like such an unlikely thing. So I wonder if an argument could be made perhaps that God was complicit with Tamar in that moment um, in establishing the Davidic line in that particular moment. So even though God isn't explicitly referenced in the text, God is Tamar's co-worker and conspirator in that moment, which to me, like putting on a Lutheran hat, Lutherans do believe that God's action is the primary one. And that that escapes us a little bit in this story, but imagining God as Tamar's co-conspirator in that moment, the way I, if I was preaching this text, which that would be a fun task, I might go in the direction of something like God, like offers us these opportunities to collaborate and it's up to us to walk through those doors. Um, And we respond not out of a place of, we have to do this in order to be saved. We get to do this as a grateful response. Not exactly Tamar's situation. Tamar really was put in this position because she had no other good options. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but she does walk into these opportunities, even these like highly unlikely, deeply subversive possibilities, um, trusting that either she could make a way or that God would make a way for her because she was the one who was in the right. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that's really helpful, especially for contextualizing this, this story and her actions. You were also, the way you were describing um, Tamar before uh, as like powerless and seen by God kicks me back to another Genesis story where Hagar, uh, the mother of Ishmael, one of the wives of Abraham, um, is sent off into the desert and with her young child and totally expects to die in the wilderness. And God saves her and points her towards a well. And she is the first person in the biblical narrative to give God a name. And she names God the one who sees me. Wow. And that idea, and particularly coming out of a woman's mouth and a woman who has been failed by the system of law in much the same way Tamar was. Yeah. To hear her give that particular name to God. And then knowing that that verb to see was so pivotal in Tamar's own story. I think that there's a, a little bit of a scriptural echo happening there. Absolutely. That's really cool. Uh, are we ready to move on to historical commentary? Yes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to run through uh, both historical and postmodern sort of back to back. So uh, let me bring up my notes. Yeah. Okay. So I was like dreading this a little bit because I totally expected people to interpret Tamar's, Tamar is just like this illicit harlot and really come down hard on her. Uh, so to people's general credit, this story was usually interpreted as an illustration of Judah's moral shortcomings more than as a reference on Tamar's, but they don't let her off too easy. Um, so I went to the Bible Hub website, which contains both a lot of scriptural interpretations. You can look at them side by side, as well as a lot of older commentaries that are all in the public domain. So I went to a commentary by an English theologian from the 17th century named Matthew Poole, as just sort of a, a general little look into how these things were being written about. And this is how his article on Tamar begins. Brace yourself. This story is not without difficulty, which we can agree with. But then he goes on, if we consider how little time is allowed for all the events of this chapter, they're not being above 23 years between Judah's marriage and the birth of Perez. So for Matthew Poole, like the first difficulty of this story is not like, the, like the scandal and the way that the law fails and justice falls short is the timeline. It's like, how do we make it all make sense? So priorities, guys. Um, so Poole uh, goes on to write about the specific verse where Judah has sex with Tamar. Uh, and he says, and this and other such horrid crimes committed sometimes by the patriarchs and other eminent persons. It hath pleased God for diverse, wise, and holy reasons to leave upon record partly to discover how great and deep the corruption of man's nature is. And that even in the best, partly to oblige all men to a humble sense of their own infirmity and diligent application of themselves to God for his gracious succors. Um, so there's like a, a possible little like Lutheran thread there. Um, this yeah. would be what Luther talks about is the use of the law. Uh, this is a story in which the law really exposes Judah's shortcomings. The interesting piece of it is that that doesn't quite apply in the same way to Tamar. Tamar really uses the shortcomings of the law to her own advantage. So, but if we just look at Judah's story, then we get Poole's perspective. Um, and on that last, the, the story ends on this fantastic verse where 
uh, Judah says something along the lines of, and it kind of depends on how you interpret the Hebrew, but it, it goes something like, she is more righteous than I, she is more in the right than I. It's this acknowledgement from Judah that Tamar has, um, deserves the upper hand. Um, so on that verse, Matthew Cool writes, she was more unchaste because she knowingly committed adultery and incest when he designed neither, but he was more unjust because he was the cause of her sin both by withholding Shelah from her, who was hers both by right and by Judah's promise, and by whom her chastity should have been preserved, and by his solicitation and encouragement of her to this hymn. So in setting up the scales of justice to weigh in a story, um, Poole refuses to let Tamar off, like he judges her for her unchastity, but he definitely condemns Judah more. Uh, and like and sets up injustice, unjustice as a weightier sin than unchastity, which I actually thought was really interesting. That played yeah. against my expectations of how that was going to go. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to kind of yeah have a hierarchy of sins. <laughs> we do, we definitely do, yeah. and I often feel like the ones that women are seen as more prone to committing are like judged more harshly. <laughs> unchastity yeah. being at the top of that list. Um, so I, all, the other place I went to get a sort of sense of how this scene was interpreted and seen was art. I really love looking at biblical art. I find yeah. it fascinating. Um, and can you guess what scene in this story gets the most depiction? The interaction between Tamar and Judah when she is veiled. That's right? absolutely it. That's the one you'll find. I found like one picture of the very end where she's being dragged to a fire and there's like the serpent off in the corner showing Judah like, hey, I have this staff. He's wow. like, ah. um, but mo for the most part, the overwhelming majority of moments of art involve that meeting between Tamar and Judah. So often in these scenes, like Tamar is very clearly portrayed as a prostitute, um, often semi-exposed. And Judah is usually like in this attitude of leaning over her, like clearly eager to get the negotiating over with and move on to the sex. And the, the piece I really zeroed in on as like my favorite representative sample is this work called Judah and Tamar by a French artist named Horace Vernet from 1840. Portrays a fairly accurate kind of Middle Eastern backdrop. Uh, and then there's Tamar in the foreground and she's like sitting on this rock and she's got one leg like just stretched out and she's wearing this dress that is slit up to the thigh and that whole leg is exposed. And uh, she's got her dress on, but it's like half falling off. So like one breast is exposed. And despite all of this exposure, she's got one hand holding a veil across her face. <laughs> and then the other hand is stretched out for payment. So she, it's really this like very like sassy prostitute kind of story. And like that just, oh. I'm really struck by the hand that's just holding the veil across the face because the rest of her is so fully exposed. Um, so the, the veil itself really sort of plays in as this like plot device that I just find really fascinating. The, the veil in this particular piece of art is very clearly a means of keeping Judah from recognizing her. Uh, and then Judah himself is in that attitude I described of like really leaning into her and, and clearly soliciting her. So Tamar in that picture is very much like the prostitute, but also very much the, the woman who's in power in that moment. You can see that she has the negotiating upper hand. Interesting sort of picture of her. But there's this other example that I found really interesting, uh, which demonstrates that there were some different interpretations going on with the scene. And it's a work of the same title from the School of Rembrandt 
from the 17th century. And in this uh, picture, Tamar is definitely the focus. Judah is leaning toward her, but his body is twisted away from the viewer, so his face is in shadow. And Tamar is the one that's fully lit. Uh, and Rembrandt loved to work with that light and shadow dichotomy. So really, Tamar is almost glowing in this picture. Um, and the fact that she's so fully lit really draws attention to the fact that her face is veiled, not from the nose down, but from the eyes up, which is not the general way that veils are portrayed. Mm. It's so interesting to me that the piece of her that is exposed, that, that is visible, is her mouth particularly because she uses her voice so fully mm -hmm. in the second half of this story. And the other notable thing about Tamar in this picture is that she's dressed as a noble woman, and there is absolutely nothing in her attire to indicate that she is prostituting herself. Wow. Like, as you look at her, she is just a normal lady who happens to be wearing a rather strange veil. And you get the sense in the picture, even though you can't see her from the eyes up, that this is a woman who knows exactly what she's doing. She's fully possessed of herself. You really get the sense that she's got a plan and everything is going according to it. Uh, she's a woman who looks like, unlike the first woman who just sort of seems like, mm, we're all about the business. She seems really intelligent and self-possessed and very determined just a woman who is very full of agency. So I thought that that was a really interesting sort of glimpse into how some of the, these artists were bringing the story to life. That's really, it's really interesting. And it reminds me of, um, so one of the things that I read about this story is it's kind of suspect that Judah immediately after mourning did this. And so it just that also underscores his lack of character, like the negative qualities yeah. is that he didn't, he mourned for just the appropriate amount of time. And mm. then he went to the sheep shearing festival and then he, you know, had sex with a prostitute. And I think that these, that sounds like the paintings are really just, again, emphasizing his negative qualities and, you know, elevating Tamar, which is really, is really, yeah, I, I appreciate that, especially because I find her so just such an interesting and brave character. And I love the empowerment that they're giving her. I do too. It's, I love the way you phrase that. It really does put Tamar in the spotlight. Um, and I'd say particularly the second painting. Mm -hmm. um, just really, <laughs> in both paintings, I think Judah's a little bit creepy. And that might yeah. be my postmodern read into it. But he, like, mm, he kind of seems like a creepy old man. And um, the, the focus is just so clearly on Tamar. It's refreshing after, you know, half of the story of reading her being pushed to the margins to see her centered. Yeah. Um, so postmodern interpretations and commentary. Um, I read a couple of articles that just really uh, went more deeply into Tamar's use of sex and how she really very intentionally employed it to invert the patriarchal roles of authority. Um, I read this great article by Ananya Malhotra called Genesis's Tamar, the Bible's most sex positive feminist. <laughs> oh. And it really dove into how she very intentionally used sex as a tool. Um, and how once she assumes that identity of a prostitute, this woman uh, or this female role that was really looked down upon, she gets all of this bargaining power that Judah had stripped away from her before. Mm -hmm. So she's willing to step even more deeply into the margins, into this uh, role that society really judged in order to 
get back some of her power. And she uses it to great effect. And, and then I had read a second article about uh, just laying out that Judah has really taken away Tamar's bargaining power and authority as the wife of the first son, which should have been a role that guaranteed her a lot of status in life. He, he has taken that away from her. But she then, by the end of the story, has taken his identity by taking the cord and the signet and the staff. So this is a story of real true power inversion in a deeply unexpected kind of way. Yes. If we quickly fast forward to Joseph, Joseph is given Pharaoh's signet after he's <gasps> taken out of jail um, by Pharaoh, interprets his dream. Pharaoh's like, good job. <laughs> Here, you're going to be the second highest ranking person in Egypt after me. Here's my signet. Um, and yeah, and so that's another connection, obviously. But it's also like a, a really interesting, like both Tamar and Joseph are, are given in many, in very different circumstances, but they're given a signet. And then they're, as you're saying, they're given authority. And others recognize that authority. And Judah ultimately does recognize Tamar's authority when he sees his old signet which is now hers mm -hmm. oh I love yeah. that that's so good yeah so I think that the, you can read you know one interpretation of this is you can read Joseph's like explicit um I guess provision of authority by Pharaoh as um you know echoing or reflecting in Tamar's giving her receiving authority and becoming a powerful figure as well I'm loving how at different points uh, in our unpacking of this, Joseph seems to have things in common with both Judah, like in the sense of the garment, yeah. and with Tamar, in the sense of like borrowed power. I think that's yeah, really that's true. incredible. Yeah. All right, that brings us to pop culture. There's not a lot. <laughs> Perhaps unsurprisingly, Tamar is not the most popular biblical character, <laughs> um, though she should be. She should be. But, we'll speak up for Tamar. Yes. There are a few, I found a few books, which I have not been able to read, or I have not read either of these, but there's a book, they're both called Tamar. <laughs> so Tamar by Mal P. Um, have you heard of the book? I have book? not. No. Um, so it, it's a novel about um, a spy in World War II, and there's a lot of themes of deception through code names and code breaking. And so, oh, cool. yeah, I think it's interesting to, I mean, I'm not going to imply that I know exactly what the author was trying to do, but Tamar does have a lot of, the story of Tamar and Genesis has a lot of deception. And so mm -hmm. the author seems to be playing on deception in his, in their novel. That's really cool. Yeah. And then there's another book also called Tamar by Deborah Chalinor which is about a woman um, being abandoned by her family, specifically her father. And she's mm -hmm. married to an older man and has a child whose name is Joseph. So I like to oh, hey. it's also intentional. <laughs> and then the last thing I found, which is actually the first thing that popped into my head after I read Genesis 38, um, was in 30 Rock. Yes, which is when I used to really like that show. In season four, episode 21, Liz Lemon, is stalling at Floyd's wedding, her ex-boyfriend's wedding, where she got oh roped gosh. into reading a passage from the Bible at his wedding. So she starts out in one, 1 Corinthians 13, which is like the ultimate wedding like passage. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Love then, is patient. Love is kind. Mm -hmm. yep. So you go from there. <laughs> and then she gets a text and from 
her boss. And he says stall because of a bunch of different circumstances. And so she goes to an unscheduled reading. Oh my God. And one of these unscheduled readings is Genesis 38, nine. Since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife. Oh my gosh. So props to Tina Fey for knowing her weird mm -hmm. scripture references. Yeah. Is really, and clearly she did it for comedic effect <laughs> and to <laughs> contrast 1 Corinthians 13 to a passage that is very vulgar and probably has never been read in any wedding <laughs> for this TV one. I feel like we're issuing a challenge to the universe. That's true. More Tamar at weddings, please. Yes, that, that is the, the moral of this story. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was funny. I love that 30 Rock reference. Yeah. Oh, should we get into work cited? Yeah. What did we move? Um, I mentioned two of the articles I, I used already. Um, there's an article called Genesis is Tamar, the Bible's most sex positive feminist. There is something on the internet called the Jewish Women's Archive, and they go into articles about lots of different biblical characters, and they are unfailingly excellent. So I highly encourage a quick skim of their article on Tamar by Tivka Frymerkensky, which is excellent. Um, I also leaned heavily on a chapter in The Bad Girls of the Bible by Barbara J. Essex on Tamar. Uh, just a wonderful walkthrough of the story. Yeah, so I used um, an article called The Wrong Woman Righted, an analysis of Genesis 38 by Susan Nittich, which is in the Harvard Theological Review. Mm -hmm. And then the article, the most, I don't know, compelling article, which I talked about earlier about um, Tamar as a matriarch is by mm -hmm. Jonathan Krishwitz, and it's Tamar among the matriarchs, godless and perhaps closer to God. And the article about the garments is called Divestiture, Deception, and Demotion, the Garment, Mot Garment Motif in Genesis 37 to 39 by John Huddleston. Um, and then there's a fourth by, I'm going to not pronounce their name correctly, but Hyun Ku Ju, called The Literary Inner Logic of Genesis 38 by Means of Sexual Incontinence and Deception Motif. Ooh. Yeah. Okay, this was fun. So uh, we prepared this podcast uh, to be listened to at any point during Advent or, you know, whenever you have the time. But we also intend to have a discussion about it on Wednesday, December 2nd at 7 p.m. via Zoom. Uh, so if you have some thoughts on this story or uh, want to dive more deeply into any of these aspects we've raised or ones that we've forgotten, feel free to join us on Zoom. And we look forward to hopefully seeing you then. Thank you.